Am I even allowed to say Happy New Year? Is that what we're doing this year? I'm not feeling it, but I guess we need to be optimistic as we head into 2021. So, Happy New Year's, friends. Here's to a better 2021. It can't be that much worse, right? While I was originally planning on taking a break for a few weeks so I could reboot a little bit, this is a special episode we decided to do with a friend of the show. We're talking nonprofits in Ohio with someone well-known to Central Ohioans, Mike Corey of the Human Service Chamber of Franklin County. In my conversation with Mike, we talk about the state of Ohio's nonprofit sector after an absolutely painful 2020, which has not only left some of these organizations operating on tighter margins, but has made the work that they do that much more critical. Mike fills us in on how Ohio's nonprofits are doing and what they need. As always, before turning to my conversation with Mike, I'd like to remind you to share your ideas for show themes or interviews by emailing us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our website at prognosisohio.com. As listeners know, this is usually where I ask them to consider supporting our show by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. We'd love that, of course, and you can do it by going to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. But today, since we're shining a light on the great work that nonprofits have been doing in our state during the pandemic, but also their real need for your support, we're going to ask you to consider throwing some support to organizations that really need it. We're releasing this on New Year's Day, so it's too late for you to get tax credits and things like that, but that's not what it's about these days anyway. If you're one of the lucky people, like I am, who's had stable employment throughout the pandemic, we ask you to please check out those links and consider donating and supporting in other ways that the organizations suggest. You can find those show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com. By the way, while you're at the WCBE website, that's of course another great way to support a nonprofit organization that does good things in our community, like supporting this podcast, for example. Okay, now to my conversation with Mike Corey, Executive Director of the Human Service Chamber of Franklin County. Mike needs no introduction, really, but suffice to say that he's a champion for nonprofits and basically all of the good things that keep us vibrant and strong here in Ohio. We'll be including his full bio in the show notes. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the show and being back here again. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I just want to start by saying Happy New Year. And <laughs> I really mean it. I mean, like I say Happy New Year every year, but this year it's sort of like, damn, <laughs> we got to get on with the next thing. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to whatever that holds because it's got to be better than this year, I guess. We better knock on wood. Right, exactly. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a spiritual type, but uh, I'm willing to go there for for the time being. Yes. Um, you know, I follow you on Twitter, and I love following you for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is, you know, you you have uh, anger, <laughs> you have frustration, and you're not afraid to talk about that. But you also have hope, and you also, you know, and also working with the Human Service Chamber. I mean, you you kind of exude this, like, we can do better, we have to do better, people need help, but also you're willing to be like, this is this is not right, you know, right. when when there are injustices happening, and there are a lot of those right now. So, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, this is Prognosis Ohio. We tend to talk about health specifically, and everything is health right now, obviously. But I wondered if we could kind of take the, the name of the show seriously and just ask you from your vantage point with the Human Service Chamber, from the work you do, from the people you talk with, how are we doing? <laughs> um, what can we do better um, moving forward? Who needs help? Who's doing great work? I mean, those are a lot of questions, but that's kind of like the, the general gist of what I wanted to talk with you about. Well, first of all, thank you for 
the chance to speak with you today and and uh, thank you for the kind words and observations about what I'm uh, exuding, I suppose, on Twitter, um, which is uh, really uh, a, a vehicle to be with community through this crisis in particular, where we can't actually be together. Uh, there are all these other channels that have percolated over the last 10 months now, but um, something about Twitter that's very special uh, is the willingness of people to be candid. And uh, I don't know how to be anything other than um, angry and hopeful right now. Um, it, everything else seems inaccurate um, or uh, not representative of, of where we're at. And I think what we've learned over the last year uh, is that the state of our union is not strong. And that our health and our humanity is what's at stake. Um, and that has been in no truer terms than through this particular health crisis, which has begat so many others and tragically will begat so many more in the years to come. Um, and I think that's where our organization um, and far more importantly, the organizations we serve are going to be so pivotal and why the next 30 days are going to be so critical for what the next 30 months, 30 weeks, 30 months, and even 30 years look like. Um, we're very much at an inflection point, even as some hurdles have been overcome and helping us identify where we're going and, and navigating some uncertainty towards some certainty. There are still a lot of open questions and yet I have to remain hopeful um, that we're going to find our way through this. And it's it's why we've embraced this catch-all phrase of we can do this because the this can mean so many things and does mean so many things to so many different people and organizations. And there are so many things that we have to be tackling that all seem insurmountable, including and especially when you consider them all at once, and they all seem to be collapsing at the same time. But at the same time, there are so many efforts to build us back together. And back together can't be what we were in many regards. In many regards, it will be. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful for where we can go uh, even after this year that's exposed and exacerbated so many things that have made us not what we need to be. Yeah, I think of some of these slogans we've had through the last year. You know, of course, um, President-elect Biden, you know, running on Build Back Better. Right. But also, you know, Amy Acton, Dr. Acton telling us we can do hard things. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I think the jury's out on that sometimes, yeah. uh, whether we can or want to do hard things. Yeah. Um, I think some people maybe want to do hard things and others um, want other people to do hard things right. for them. Right. You know, and I especially think about, you know, medical professionals, people who are working in our hospitals, uh, people who are working in our nursing homes, um, people who are cleaning hospitals and work and cleaning nursing homes yes. and doing the kind of infrastructure work. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I back to the anger piece. I mean, I just want to mention, I mean, so, you know, we've had this moment where, you know, in, in the course of American history, when the government fails it should make people angry. I mean, this is my brand of patriotism anyway, which is demand better, demand more. But it seems like a lot of people are really resigned to, 
well, that's what you can expect, or you know, they don't expect much much from the federal government, or maybe they don't expect that the the state has the um, the authority or the power or the will to do certain things. So, right, you know, what I see when I look at the kind of organizations you work with through the Human Service Chamber, but not not only others in the state too is this sense of we're going to do it ourselves then and we're going to be as scrappy as we can but of course you know uh we can't we can't expect them to do it uh without resources yeah it, it's a it's a really important point and in in a lot of ways the challenges that we've all had to overcome since march in providing health and human services broadly um, were forecast um, when the White House issued its very first budget proposal back in 2017, where more so than any other sector, health and human services were shown to be not only deprioritized, but in the crosshairs of this administration, this now outgoing administration. And while many of those cuts never came to pass, many did. And that really handicapped the ability of our infrastructure on the government side and then on the ground, on the the nonprofit side, from being able to respond as it otherwise could have if we had been making investments in that infrastructure um, that we hadn't been Uh, And that the federal government, and by that I mean um, the agencies themselves as well as the White House, have really been absent from the game. Uh, The game, and I don't mean to make light of it, but being being that central receptacle of decisions and data and PPE and so forth, they just haven't been there. That's been delegated to the states and the cities and the agencies delivering services. Uh, So it was imperative uh, and necessary that that happen, and it's made it much harder. And that has manifested in practical challenges like states having to compete with one another to buy protective equipment from the earliest stages of this crisis to um, uh, just not having accurate data across states that could, could then be shared so that services could be delivered better as best practices were identified. So um, the, the local, uh, officials on the governmental side and the nonprofit side, as well as state officials on the government side and nonprofit side, have all had to make do. And the more alliances that have arisen, intrastate and interstate, the better services have been able to be. Um, and it's it's really been difficult that the federal government hasn't wanted to participate um, in a real way, beyond a performative way, uh, through this crisis. On our last episode, we uh, spoke with former director uh, from the Ohio Department of Health, Rick Hodges, and he was talking a little bit about how the Obama administration mobilized during the Ebola situation, which obviously turned out to be much smaller and more contained than what we're in right now. Right. But he was able to sort of say, you know, but you 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 saw what the Obama administration would have done in a much bigger situation because it came down to a philosophy of government. Right. What are we preparing for? What do we even think is our job? And we've looked at the Trump administration even say, you know, we're just here in case the states uh, drop the ball. Like they saw no 
proactive role for the federal government right. at all, really. Right. Uh, absolutely. And I, I don't think that warped philosophy that the Trump White House has represented for four years of government is representative of many peer Republicans, um, including and especially those in governance running states and cities. Um, that isn't true across the board, unfortunately, and that's there are there are plenty of um, uh, criticisms uh, of uh, all sorts of decision makers, regardless of their political philosophy and, and underpinnings. But um, that philosophy that this particular White House has brought to the table has been one of passivity and blame, um, and taking credit when things go well. Um, and that doesn't help save lives. That doesn't help build up infrastructure, um, and that. That has then again fallen to state leaders and city leaders and municipal leaders to to build infrastructure and get things done. Um, it, in the very early stages again of this pandemic, when there was a scramble and a mad dash for protective equipment outside of the hospital system, um, it, it, it fell to regular people donating their spare gloves and N95 masks that had been sitting in their drawers for years to find the helpers and give them, um, give them over so that people providing services that were essential, that couldn't just stop when we had to shut down, could be a little bit safer. I mean, thank God here in central Ohio, we have these new distilleries that have opened over the last 10 years or so, because some of them repurpose the, their, their abilities to produce things to actually fill some of those gaps in some cases. That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the distilleries, uh, Middle West and Watershed, uh, decided we're going to help here and they received some investments to do so. And in fact, we worked with Middle West to get 13,000 bottles of hand sanitizer into the hands of our members. Um, That was a critical investment at a critical time. Excuse me. And there were all sorts of examples like that across our state and and certainly across our city. And those are the pieces to this that are what um, define my hope of how we're getting through this because there have been so many people that have decided regardless of the title that they have or don't have that they can be public servants through this thing and there have been so many so if we talk about you know the trump administration um really staying you know um and I was going to put it kindly and saying stay, staying out of all this, but really a dereliction of duty and, and dropping the ball, you know, um, to mix my metaphors. You know, we have right now in front of us, uh, even when I, you and I talked about having this conversation two days ago, we assumed there would be a bill right. going through Congress that would provide a second wave of um, stimulus, relief, whatever you want to call it, Um just the other night, um, there was a bill passed through Congress, but then all of a sudden the president comes out of the, 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 the wings and says, oh, no, no, we need $2,000 per, per person instead of $600, to which uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, said, great, let's get Congress back in and do this. Um, and we have this kind of incredible moment. It seems like Trump, I mean, my cynical view on this, and I don't think I'm alone, is he's you know, kind of covering all these crazy pardons he's issuing right now and trying to, you know, take some of that off. Right. But I wonder, you know, what does this mean to your members? What does this mean to the people you speak with in our community? Um, and there's a lot of different pieces to this this particular legislation. Um, right. Everything from, you know, small businesses to individuals to SNAP to unemployment. Uh, 
how do you think about this? What, what's at stake for the people you work with and represent? So bluntly, this is a bill that will prevent catastrophes on top of the existing catastrophes. Um, and we have been pushing for this along with organizations across the country since shortly after the CARES Act passed. And we've been hoping for additional stimulus uh, through that whole time from the federal government. And uh, I'm very grateful that this bill has passed through Congress. It's imperfect. It's not proportional to the need and it's not as responsive to health and human services agencies as we needed it to be, but it does a hell of a lot. And the threat that is suddenly on the table again of this being vetoed or tossed asunder uh, is, is sort of a fitting end to the Trump administration um, where everything has been uncertain, um, including and especially for the people that our agencies are trying to help. Um, I've been in conversations with folks ever since the announcement came out last night and uh, there's an increasing sense of we might need to prepare a veto override. And I think the votes will be there for that uh, just in case that happens. But the mere fact that this is being threatened right now uh, is just another element of turbulence to what has been the most turbulent year that I can recall that I'm aware of for the health and human services sector. Yeah, when I think back to President Trump's inaugural, right, that famous line, uh, this American carnage stops now. I mean, it just rings in my head and you say, oh, we, I mean, I, I think I had some idea. I was, I was already scared of what was going to happen. Right. But man, we didn't see this exactly. You know, <laughs> I mean, you never know exactly what's going to happen, but right. this is, the scale of this is just incredible. We, um, so one of the elements of my job um, since March has been to ensure our hundred plus nonprofit leaders were aware of what was happening and what was coming uh, it, to the best of our ability, right? And uh, one of the lines that I've been sharing with them for some time is from Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men, you can't stop what's coming. Um, and what I told them was coming in September uh, with great reluctance um, was that there was going to be a constitutional crisis uh, if Donald Trump were to lose on election day and that he was going to challenge the results and not accept them and that everything else was on the table um, accordingly. And, and that would include any stimulus that might be pursued. But our hope as I forecast to our folks then was um, that if in fact um, Donald Trump was not successful and if in fact I was correct that there was going to be a constitutional crisis thereafter, that Congress would come together and get a stimulus deal done. And mercifully, that is what happened. It took longer and it wasn't quite as robust as we hoped, but it, it happened. Um, and, and with it here now and the degree of carnage being so enormous and so impossible to fathom with over 300,000 people dead uh, with deaths increasing in our community and across state and across the country for at least three more weeks. 
um, at record levels each day. Um, it, it is uh, it is almost too much to bear. And um, I, I think a lot about how much trauma there has been for our frontline staff or at our at our agencies and how much more suffering they've had to see than they already did. And poverty itself is trauma. We, we know that racism itself is trauma. We know that. Um, and that's hard enough as it is. That's impossible enough as it is. And with this um, enormous tragedy of our year and in the months ahead, for it to be sort of culminating with this added uncertainty is is really um, a, a slap in the face uh, at the end of this difficult year. So um, he he did not know he was foreshadowing the the suffering to come in those words that he was uh, falsely using to lament um, uh, the, the, the past suffering that was nothing compared to what we have seen. Right. Sophocles himself could not have done a better job. <laughs> when you do step back and look at this, I mean, I, I don't want to intellectualize something that's been so tragic, but, you know, I've developed a few coping skills through the last year. One of them is history. Right. Um, really trying to get some perspectives, get some reflection, reading about 1918, of course, but just reading about leadership, reading about, um, I don't know, just what this country's been through in, uh, in terms of um, civil rights and, right. and all of that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, hel- it helps a little bit, but I, when you look down the road, it's, it's already obvious to me. I've had this discussion with some historians and they say, no, it's more complicated than that, but I'm pretty sure I know how this history gets written. And it's one of the things that puzzles me about Trump, actually, I have to say, is uh, even from a cynical perspective, you would think that a person like him, knowing what we know about him, would want to be remembered in a certain way. And he's not doing any of that work to even spin this, right? Mm-hmm. Not even remotely. It's just very clear that this is going to be remembered as a horrific moment in American history, and he was at the helm. It's a really interesting point, and I think there were some stretches when he was essentially trying to stop the narrative um, with um, pardoning the pun of stopping the count that he would later embrace and, and say, look, only 80,000 people have died. And the forecast said a million would have died if we didn't act so wonderfully. Um, and then hoped it would just kind of leave the pages and they could focus on uh, winning the election. Um, and at some point, I'm not sure where it was. Uh, I think he just started, I'm just not going to talk about it anymore um, as a white house because none of their forecasts have been true. Of course. Um, the, the famous headline from Mike Pence's um, article in the, in the Wall Street Journal of there's not a second wave and there's not going to be one. Um, of course, there have now been two since then, and this one being far more calamitous than the prior two combined. Uh, it, it's, it's all very frustrating, um, it, it, but in a way irrelevant uh, because it's happening regardless of his spin and I know what hi- the history will be of his legacy, but I, I'm focused at the moment, and as, as I know you and so many of our my bosses are on, how do we minimize suffering right now? Um, and how do we do that uh, over the next 28 days while the White House is as it is? 
Um, and while we, we try and navigate these governmental challenges and overcome them and circumvent them to minimize the suffering and help as many people as we can, and there are so many good efforts afoot um, to, to do that um, uh, in, in spite of, of what we know is coming. But in the interim, uh, we know his focus is going to be on self-preservation, which is why his focus is on talking about the miracle that science has shown and that public-private partnership has shown in getting these vaccines created and out the door so quickly. But now it falls to logistics. Now it falls to supply chains. Now it falls to organization. And uh, that's falling again to states and locales to figure that out and do it as well as possible to minimize suffering. So we're, we're grateful to be in a community where our public health authorities at the local and state level are eager to do that. And we're trying our best to ignore the noise and the uncertainty of, of what this White House is going to do perhaps on January 6th and between January 6th and January 20th, um, unless it relates to the work we're trying to do in saving people. I'm really glad you took the conversation in that direction. You know, I, I don't want to let those people suck all the oxygen out of the room. I mean, we, we have real fights ahead of us and on the policy side, there are big questions and there's just uncertainty. By the time this, by the time I drop this episode, we may have a bill, we may not. We, we don't know what we'll have, but right. uh, my apologies to listeners. We can only do so much. Right. But I do want to, you know, end by giving you a, an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of, you know, we've talked about the, the macro challenges. I mean, we need cash. We need you know, support and right. all sorts. But you work with, you know, a, a roster of really amazing organizations that without which uh, Central Ohio, Franklin County would just, I mean, be in a lot of trouble. And I wanted to give you a chance to share. I know you, they're all your favorites and all of that, but I wondered, and we're, we're going to link to show notes so people can know a little bit more about some of these organizations and support them and, and, and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what are some examples of inspiring work you've seen? What are some examples of, um, you know, ways in which these organizations with the, you know, that, that associate with the human service chamber have, um, you know, helped us through this period? Well, I, I appreciate the chance to um, talk about my bosses and I, uh, I'll, I'll start with this and I'll, I'll try not to meander when we started the year as an organization, we had about 80 members of the chamber. And just like a traditional chamber of commerce, a, an organization pays dues to be a part of this. And, and we hope we strive to provide enough value to make their investment of time and, and dues worth it. Um, over the course of this crisis, we've tried to, and there are obviously many crises um, that have percolated this year, um, we've tried to narrow and deepen the work we provide helping them so they can help everybody else that really needs it. And, and my bosses then are now about 106 nonprofits, 106 leaders, uh, over 14,000 staff that work for them. And I consider the hundreds of thousands of people that they serve to be my bosses too. Man, you got a lot of bosses. I mean, <laughs> I do. And I'm, I'm I'm grateful for each of them and the work that they do. And, and I consider that work even being just taking care of themselves. Uh, I think that's one thing we can all do through this. That's one thing our public health officials, including Dr. Acton, 
admonish us to do early on is just try and stay healthy if you can. If you're privileged enough like I am to be a, a keyboard warrior, work from home, uh, then then do that. I have to tell you, Michael, I, there was one day during you know, early on uh, during the uh, you know the pandemic, maybe in May, and I was up on a ladder, I think cleaning some gutters. <laughs> And I kind of slipped a little bit, almost, you know, just a little bit to remind myself that I could fall. And I felt like I had personally let down Amy. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I kind of got down from the ladder carefully and said, well, all right, you know, I, I, I have, a, I have a cousin in orthopedics and um, I, I know that uh, he would appreciate your increased care for yourself <laughs> that you didn't hurt yourself more. Um so, you know, so many of our organizations have been doing Herculean work without enough resources since long before March. And they've had to do that so much more since then. And every single story that I've been privileged to hear from them has has moved me. And I I feel like I've aged 50 years since then, but I'll, I'll try and capture a couple anecdotes. Um, let, let, me, let me highlight... Um, how much togetherness I have seen within the sector. Um, there still and always will be a healthy competition um, within the sector, just as in the for-profit community, but the amount of collaboration has been extraordinary. Um, and, and one example, and, and I heard from uh, COSI last week, and COSI wanted to deliver um, these learning lunch boxes, and they knew about a list we had compiled of over 30 of our agencies having some sort of holiday drive this December to, to get resources or gifts or food or clothing or gift cards out to the community. And COSI had seen this and said, we want to support a couple of these by providing some learning lunch boxes along with whatever these agencies are providing. And despite everything that's happening, despite how exhausted everyone is, despite how traumatized everyone is, despite how much we're, we're just, we're ready to take a couple of days off and, and catch our breaths. In a couple of days, COSI pulled together these really awesome events that all happened yesterday, actually, with like five of our agencies, getting out food, getting out science education, getting out clothing uh, to, I, I think, um, over a thousand people in a, in a single day. And there have been things like that happening over and over and over again. Um, uh, another recent example We've been doing these monthly assessments of how much protective equipment our agencies need. And we asked them, tell us how many masks and gloves and bottles of soap and HEPA filters, whatever else you might need. Tell us what you need. And we're going to go fishing for anybody to donate or point us the right direction to buy uh, all this stuff that you all need to keep your folks safe and to keep your clients safe. And a month ago, less than a month ago, uh, the clear need that was the largest in terms of volume was disposable gloves. And uh, I spent time and some of my board members spent time researching where the heck we could find more disposable gloves. And I learned more than I ever wanted to know about disposable glove manufacturing and supply chains and, and why there was a shortage. That wasn't in law school. You uh, didn't need it. No, it, yeah, I have my legal training has been null and void this year. It's, it's all been about uh, logistics uh, and communication, which is far more important, I think, this year. Uh, anyway, uh, one of my, my board chair reached out to uh, uh, 
someone she's gotten to know through her work running Catholic Social Services, and it was Kimball Midwest. And Kimball Midwest said, what do you need? And we said, we need 100,000 gloves. And they said, you got it. And they donated 100,000 disposable gloves, which halved the need of over 100 nonprofits for disposable gloves right now. Wow. So I said, all right, this is great, um, but I don't have a warehouse and I don't have a truck to pick them up and, and um, take care of it. So I reached out to Coda and I said, hey, Coda, you guys have been a great partner this year. Would you be willing to lend a vehicle and someone's valuable time to pick up these gloves and take them to a warehouse that I'm still trying to identify? And they said, no problem. You got it. You tell us when and where we'll be there. And then I reached out to our membership and I said, we need a warehouse and we need some folks that will be willing to unload a truck of 100,000 disposable gloves. And oh, they threw in 1,000 gallons of sanitizer to boot. And one of our agencies said, we've got a warehouse. We're happy to do this. And then I reached out to some folks and said, I need a volunteer that can supervise this because I I can't be out and about, uh, unfortunately, supervising this process. And sure enough, uh, a gentleman that's in between jobs right now that uh, caught my um, call for help said, I got it. And lo and behold, we had this incredible um, public-private collaboration to get 100,000 gloves and 1,000 gallons of sanitizer out to our member organizations uh, on f- this past Friday afternoon. And wow. uh, that that's, again, just one example of, of what's been happening in spite of it all. Um, and it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't have to be that way. But this is the situation we're in. And uh, I hope that that makes our agency's ability to deliver services a little bit safer um, for as long as possible until things start getting better next year. Yeah, I mean, of course, a lot of this is under the specter of government failure at the federal level. I mean, I think our state, you know, states can do what they can do, but right. they have limited uh, means to to work with. Right. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, I'm a political theorist by training. And when you study anarchism, there's this tradition I've always loved in the anarchist tradition, which of course is like, they're kind of opposed to government, right? <laughs> That's their logic. And I'm talking about this in the, under the like umbrella of the failures of government. But right. Um, this idea of a Skillshare, and I always loved this because have you ever heard of this idea of a Skillshare? No, I haven't. So it's it's basically very simple, which is like a community. One of the very basic things a community should do is to just figure out what they know how to do right. together. Right. You know, I don't know, like maybe you're really good at, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody's really good at doing taxes and another person knows how to fix a, a car. Right. And next thing you know, you can start to sort of just connect these people to create more strength within the community. And I think a lot of us have been forced to do a lot of those things just to kind of get by. Yes. Um, it's not the optimal way to do it. It's not the way that a um, industrialized nation like the United States is supposed to be operating. But right. I think we have seen quite a bit of that kind of behavior over the last 10 months. And it's, I, I, if nothing else we can come out of this with, I, I would hope that it would be a, a more connectivity, you know, and it seems like that's what you're describing amongst the groups that you work with. Absolutely. And, and we have seen that within our membership, um, sharing knowledge, sharing templates, sharing tools, sharing, best and worst practices. Um, One of the pieces of my job that um, I think has made the chamber helpful through this has been uh, in these daily communications that I send to our folks, a lot of people will say, hey, Mike, we need um, some examples of um, uh, an employment contract, or we have some 
we, we have an IT question and we just don't have the capacity to, to reach out. Who, who, who out there has answers to these questions? And I put them out there and it's been amazing to see the, the communication that's been happening. And I, I would love to have a more complex tool than emails. And I'd love to get out of the way of these folks to make this more efficient. But in the interim, that's, that sharing of skills and knowledge has been extraordinary. And it's happening outside of our sector too. It's, it's, it's been amazing to see all, all people have to do is say, I need help. And people are just chomping at the bit to do so. Um, and I think that will, that will continue, um, which again is, is gratifying and, and gives me some hope even in these, these darker days um, that, we're, that we're navigating right now with whatever uncertainty there, there continues to be. If there's any silver lining from this horror show, um, that might be it. But um, yeah, I, I just appreciate you taking the time. The Human Service uh, Chamber, you know, my favorite chamber, I'll say, uh, of, all the ch- <laughs> of, of all the chambers uh, that I know. Um, there's a Wu-Tang joke in there somewhere. <laughs> but um, you know, thanks for the work you do. Um, we hope to continue. We've had several um, members uh, of the Human Service Chamber on the show. Hopefully, we'll continue to talk with more of them uh, throughout next year. And also for listeners, we will be providing you know, in our show notes at wcbe.org and at prognosisohio.com uh, lists of some of these organizations, ways you can support, ways you can get involved and that's going to be the thing that gets us through. So, um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us and look forward to future conversations and happy new year. Happy new year to you. And thank you for the chance to speak about these issues. And as always for the scintillating conversation. Many thanks to Mike Corey for taking time to talk with us about what Ohio's nonprofits continue to experience in the wake of the pandemic. As promised, we'll be posting lots of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com, which we encourage you to check out, especially if you're interested in ways you can help support your fellow Central Ohioans. Be sure also to check out the Human Service Chamber's helpful tool for exploring opportunities to serve on nonprofit boards in our state. We've also linked to that in the show notes, and we encourage you to seriously consider putting your hat in the ring. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at prognosisohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. Okay, that's it for now, folks. Thanks, everybody. Be safe and be well, and Happy New Year.